the Intersection Education Podcast. Schools are the place where different institutions, services, and societal influences meet. In other words, they're at the intersection of children's lives. In the Intersection Education Podcast, we speak with insiders and outsiders of the education world to try to gain new insight and improve our schools. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Intersection Education Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Haley. Today we're talking about concept-based instruction with Diane Lander. Now, if you're like me, it seems that you're hearing about concept-based learning and teaching all over the place. I've had a little bit of introduction to it, but there are some aspects that were still unclear to me. This is why I've asked Diane to speak about this important topic. Diane Lander works as a curriculum facilitator with Parkland School Division in Alberta. She's worked as a teacher in the classroom. She's worked in government with Alberta Education, in workshops as a facilitator around the province, and now in schools, helping teachers have impact in their classroom. Over the past few years, Diane has been working on proposed curriculum changes in Alberta that focus on concept-based learning. She's one of the people I trust the most in this area and has the perspective that comes with working with the topic deeply over time. In our conversation, we shift the way we normally progress with guests based on some of the ideas around concept-based learning, so I hope you enjoy how we progress through the interview. Many different places around the world are looking at concept-based practices, but there are differing levels of understanding around this concept. I know you're going to walk away with a better appreciation of what concept-based learning is and how it might improve your impact on learning. Now, if you like what you're hearing, connect with us. Intersection Education. You can go to our website, intersectioneducation.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at Intersection Ed, and we're even on Facebook. We really appreciate it when you rate us on iTunes and leave a review. Here's my conversation with Diane Lander. Diane Lander, welcome to the Intersection Education Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm really well. Usually when I have guests on, on a podcast, I I, I start by kind of asking them for a longer explanation of, of a concept where I think that they're really an expert. But perhaps we'll try something a bit different today. Uh, we're looking at concept-based learning. So I thought we might start by asking you to share some different examples of ideas or lessons that would represent some strong concept-based practice to you. Okay. Um, so we might get to that. <laughs> um but, you know, really in thinking about this question, there are just so many facets of concept-based learning that it's really hard to pinpoint one particular example or one particular practice that really fully represents concept-based practice. So I think I'll start with a couple of overarching statements and then work my way maybe into the bit of the minutia. That sounds from good. There. Yeah. Okay. So... um. I think the first statement is really important is that concept-based practice is really about developing the intellect of our students. Sometimes I think we mistake curriculum and textbooks and tests as ends to themselves rather than the means to an end. And the end being really the development of intellect and really 
depth of understanding. Another, I think, overarching statement is that concept-based practice takes the notion of teachers as designers of learning experiences. We've heard all of that. It really takes it to a whole new level. (laughs) And it really is about um, teachers as extremely thoughtful designers of learning experiences that nurture conceptual understanding. Mm -hmm. So there is a big difference between those two. Yeah. I use the word nurture because students themselves are the ones that are constructing the learning. Just because I teach does not mean that you learn, right? It's what we do to nurture the learning that makes the difference. Concept-based practice demands that teachers are clear on what their students need to know factually, what they need to understand conceptually, and what they need to be able to do in any given subject area. Mm I think that um, concept-based instruction guru, Lynn Erickson, who we've all come to know since um, she was here in September, I think she says it best when she says that through concept-based instruction, teachers and their students both develop incrementally as thinkers. Mm -hmm. Concept-based practice requires that we do a great deal of thinking and a great deal of planning so that we entail, sorry, intentionally design learning experiences that nurture student thinking as our students work through the different phases of learning right. from surface to deep to transfer sometimes back and forth but teachers really need to be thoughtful in how they design that growth for their students yeah now the first time that i saw this concept of surface to deep to transfer was with some of hattie's work and mm-hmm. I, I know that some of the books that i've read he, he organizes essentially the whole book around that And so it's interesting because that has been one of the difficult parts is, okay, how do you go from this concept of surface level deep and then, and then moving into that transfer and really focusing on that transfer in a practical way? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, that's maybe my next question. Mm -hmm. It's like when you're looking at and when you're presenting on concept based learning and Mm -hmm. curriculum and things like, what are some of the the concrete examples? What are some of the yes. things that you're talking about when you're talking about yeah. surface level, when you're talking about deep, when you're talking yeah. about transfer learning? Perfect. Um, so I, too, have read the Hattie, uh, Visible Learning in Mathematics, a brilliant book. He outlines it well. Lynn Erickson does a really nice job of it as well. A few other of the concept-based gurus. So what I've sort of come to glean from all of that reading is um, – that surface learning really is the phase where students really just start to unpack what do those concepts mean? What did, what do, what's the surface level understanding that they have of key concepts? So this is where they do concept formation strategies or what some people might term as vocabulary building type of work um, that really help kids just gain a surface level understanding of the key concepts that teachers have determined are the main key concepts in order to be able to attain that learning outcome. Moving on to the deep learning phase comes next. So in this phase, we have students investigate different examples of case studies or examples that involve those concepts. So during this phase, those case studies might have students actually learning some facts to help them develop deeper understanding of the concepts. Mm -hmm. But conceptual understanding is the why. Right? The purpose of learning that content 
is for conceptual understanding. It's not for the sake of memorizing that content. Right. Um, they're learning the content really to help them develop a deeper understanding of those concepts. Another facet, and this kind of builds in some of the complexity of concept-based instruction, is that another facet of the deep learning phase is that they're also developing procedural knowledge. Mm -hmm. Now, procedural knowledge is a fairly new term to Alberta teachers. It's really the knowledge of how to do something, right? Our current curriculum talks about skills and processes. Procedural knowledge takes that to a bit of a higher level the knowledge of how to do those skills and process so that I literally become an expert in those procedures as well. Now, is this the part of the, and I'm just making sure Mm -hmm. that I understand because I'm linking it to some of the other things, is that procedural knowledge subject specific? Mm -hmm. Is, is, is it, do we need to learn different procedures in math and in science and in English? Absolutely subject specific in social studies procedural knowledge becomes that historical thinking. How do I analyze a document to look for bias? How do I, you know, look for clues to draw conclusions about what happened in the past? Those are very subject specific. And the Alberta curriculum, if we ever get, if it ever gets to see the light of day again, does a great job Mm -hmm. of articulating the procedural knowledge for each of, in each of the subject areas. And in fact, um, it will really help teachers design the learning experiences that interplay the conceptual knowledge with the procedural knowledge because students will do the procedural knowledge to come to understand the conceptual okay. knowledge. That's the relationship or the interplay um, between those two. And of course, in this phase two, it's really about students organizing their learning from the investigations because it's only through organization and looking for patterns in that information can I build a deeper conceptual understanding, which means the relationship. What's the relationship between two or more of those mm-hmm. key concepts that I'm learning? That's really the definition of conceptual learning is can I see the relationship between those concepts? And that's the evidence that students are ready then to learn to the tr- to go to the transfer phase. Mm -hmm. And of course, the transfer learning phase is the ultimate goal, right, of concept-based learning. In this phase, students are taught how to transfer to new contexts. They're not intended to independently get there, which was a misconception I had before. Reading the Hattie book actually taught me that, no, we need to teach kids transfer learning. It's one of the phases of learning that we teach. teach them to transfer to new and unfamiliar contexts and then they can get there independently. Right. And I think that that was something that I learned as well was Mm -hmm. we hadn't really thought of that as a skill to develop. And uh, I know some of the things that I've looked at, I mean, we didn't often get there in the first place. And then when we did, perhaps we weren't uh, doing it in ways that, that set students up for success. So I think because that we've that... taught to the surface level for so long right. and just expected students to be able to transfer. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, well you I do think what you know, right? You well, that's exactly. You know. mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that now that we've got kind of this idea of what mm-hmm. concept-based learning is, and I imagine the people listening do as well, I'm interested in, in perhaps this, this really short, concise definition of concept-based 
learning or concept-based education. Um, if someone was to ask you for just the shortest, most direct definition to give, what, what would you say? I think I would have to come to that through two different lenses, um, the lens of the student and the lens of the educator. So for from a student perspective, concept-based uh, concept education really is a shift from simply learning for the purpose of memorizing facts and regurgitating those facts on a test to really um, learning for the purpose of developing deep and transferable understanding. Mm -hmm. And then from the educator perspective, it's a shift from teaching students simply isolated bits of knowledge to actually thoughtfully designing learning experiences that help students develop their own understanding of the concepts. Yeah where those pieces of knowledge simply become the conduit for helping students get to that deep and transferable level of understanding. Those are, those are short. Those are direct. Yeah. I think people can work with those mm -hmm. for sure. Um, now, you've been thinking deeply about this way of learning for a while, and that's why I really appreciate having you on. And, and, and you've been speaking with a whole bunch of people about this shift in practice, and, and you've been, been, it sounds like, even evaluating your own practice, and then yeah. you've probably seen that shift in other people, and as they come and you get feedback and you get questions, I'd really like to know what are some of the biggest misconceptions that, that you've seen people have as they approach this, and, and what are some of the biggest questions they have as they engage in learning about this, this perhaps new way, but perhaps not so new way, refined, of refined way, yes, yeah, yes. Of, of, of bringing learning alive for their kids? Mm-hmm. I think one of the biggest misconceptions I've come across is that we no longer need to teach content because kids don't need to memorize content. They need, don't need to know content. Concept-based curriculum is about the concepts. It's not about the content. But that, in fact, is really a misconception. And that concept-based instruction does have students learning content, sort of as I alluded to earlier, but with not with the intention of memorization of the content, mm -hmm. but with the real intention of using that content to help them think conceptually about concepts. Right. Right. Um, they actually then use that content to help them justify some of those generalizations that they make when they make the connections between the concepts. They can support those generalizations with, oh, because we learned this and this, that is how I know that these concepts relate right. to each other. So they use, yeah. it's not that they don't learn the content, they do, but it's for a different reason. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when you put it that way, it seems like, isn't that the idea of learning that you would be able to apply what you learned in a school mm -hmm. outside of the walls? And in order to do that, wouldn't you have to have conceptual understanding, not just yeah. memorization of road facts? Right. And so, yeah, it, it seems evident, but, you know, at times it becomes politicized and then yeah. gets turned around. And, and maybe that's where we should talk or what should we should talk about next is that. Yeah. Um, we've been talking about this potential shift here in Alberta to our curriculum um, that would highlight those concept-based practices for a while, but there's um, been some changes. And we know that this shift or, or this curriculum that, that highlights concept-based may or may not happen. I don't think, and, and I'm interested to know your opinion, I don't think that all of that work we did was for naught. And I'd like to know what are some of the arguments that you would make to someone to incorporate concept-based practices into their classroom, 
even if we don't have a directive to do so. What do you think about concept-based practices is is good learning? What would you say to that person or say, this is why this is actually something we should all be doing? Mm-hmm. And yeah, our all of our learning has not been for naught. It, it really has just strengthened, un, I guess I'm speaking personally, but strengthened my understanding of a lot about pedagogy, how we learn, how we don't learn, and how we apply our learning and why we don't apply our learning, right? Yeah. Like that has really sort of come through for me. And it's really helped me define some really high impact practices, as you say, that aren't just to be used when we do or teach concept-based curriculum, but really they're good teaching that can be used for implementing any curriculum. So I, th- I think about three of them that I really hope our teachers will really focus in on. Um, one of them being that we need to explicitly embed metacognition. Hmm. There is so much research to support the notion that metacognition supports the learning process. To get to the point of deep conceptual understanding and transfer learning, learners need to think metacognitively. They need to think about their thinking, know where they're at in their learning, reflect on their learning, figure out how to move forward. Did you know, actually, that metacognition was introduced to the curriculum in Alberta in language arts in the year 2000? Don't know if I knew that. Yes. No, I did it, not. <laughs> it is a little known fact yeah. that is right in there in black and white. <laughs> not that we haven't been talking or teaching metacognition, yes. I think even since since when I started, but mm-hmm. I didn't actually know, I think, that it was in our yeah. curriculum. It's it's totally in there, K to 12. <laughs> and it's even included in the math and social studies curricula that were developed in the past 10 years. So it, it hasn't gone away. It's not going away. Um, so even with the current curriculum, if we don't switch over to any new curriculum in the near future, we really need to make a concerted effort to nurture metacognition. Cause I, even though it's been in the curriculum, I really don't think it's been a true focus area of ours, right? I agree. Um, another one is pre-assessment. And as you know, that's been my hill to die on for the past 10 years in Parkland. I think that only when we know where our students are at, can we figure out how to move them further on the learning continuum? So pre-assessment in many different forms is is a highly critical and highly impactful part of our teaching practice. And of course, we can't forget about formative assessment, right? Not only as a critical component of concept-based instruction, but as a critical component of any pedagogy that we might decide to take on. Um, the more we formatively assess, the more we come to know our own learners and can help them to grow. Um, in particular, the formative assessment piece that I'm really interested in continuing to work on in our district is the assessment as learning piece. We've really only begun to uncover that part of formative assessment. Um, when we co-construct criteria with kids, when they use the criteria to inform their work, when we use the criteria to give the feedback, that opens up the world of metacognition for students, which Mm -hmm. then works on developing that deeper um, conceptual understanding. Yeah. And and what's interesting is that those are ideas that we've been, yeah, thinking about and talking about for a time, but that doesn't mean they go away. And so that's, that's, 
those are that's consistent. just good instruction. Yes, yeah. absolutely. So no matter what curriculum. Yeah. Uh, let's move from concept based perhaps and and we might get back into it but but maybe just good learning i think mm-hmm. and i'd like to know is there something about learning or education that you believe is true but most people or or at least a high percentage of people would disagree with you about yeah oh cory <laughs> <laughs> we're opening a big can of worms here um but some educators and I've heard this within the last few days, are of the mindset that when you attend a PD session, you can take one, if you can take one practical strategy back to your classroom the next day, then the success, the session has been a success. Well, I've never agreed with that philosophy. And I think it's from my own personal experience that I don't agree with that philosophy. I was a classroom teacher for 23 years. I know it doesn't, doesn't look like I'm that old, but um, I know that for myself, bringing back that new shiny strategy that I learned at a session did not lead to a shift in my practice. Mm-hmm. Um, as a classroom teacher, in fact, my success indicator for our annual ATA convention was, hey, if I can bring back three ideas, I had a goal, three mm-hmm. ideas that I could use in my classroom the following week, then the convention was a success. Mm-hmm. And, you know, while I might have implemented those things for a little while, they did not lead to a shift in practice. It was really easy for me to convert back to the old status quo way of teaching. Um, and now I think that I've immersed myself in learning about concept-based instruction. I actually understand and can articulate why I disagree with that philosophy. Okay, and why is that? So my focused learning on conceptual understanding has given rise to my own conceptual understanding of conceptual understanding. Like that sounds odd, but it's true. Only when we have deep conceptual understanding, can we transfer our learning. Transfer learning is where the rubber hits the road for teacher practice, right? As a result of my own, and now I think it's fairly deep conceptual understanding of conceptual understanding, I have been able to transfer my learning to the teaching context. We as educators can only transfer our learning to the classroom context when we have deep conceptual understanding of the concepts or of that pedagogy that needs to be transferred. Mm -hmm. So I now realize one of the reasons why it's so hard for us to change practice as educators. We're expected to transfer our learning of pedagogical approaches to our teaching context when we sometimes only have surface-level understanding of them. Grabbing a strategy here and there is not transfer, right? It's simply surface-level use of that strategy until something shinier comes along. Mm -hmm. So I guess my hill to die on now (laughs) is that (laughs) if we expect a shift to happen, um, then our school districts and educators alike need to be willing and I say willing because it, it is willingness sometimes, not yeah. only time. Willing to invest the time and the effort that it takes to develop deep conceptual understanding of whatever pedagogy it is we're on about, yeah. right? Yeah. And we need to see extensive evidence of that pedagogy transferring into our classrooms before we're on to something new. And so what I'm hearing you say is that we need to invest the time 
to know the underlying philosophy, to know and uh, to understand how this would connect to our values, to understand how this would connect to learning, regardless of what we're about, before we start implementing the to-do list. Exactly. Let's not just take a strategy and try it. Mm-hmm. We know that doesn't work, <laughs> and yet we keep trying to do it. Yeah. Yeah. When this is this is in the same vein, I think. Mm-hmm. And when you think about the the most powerful learning experiences that you've had, what was it about that learning experience? What was it about that situation that that made the learning happen? Mm-hmm. And perhaps these two things are tied. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. So. I've done a little bit of work on instructional design. I've taken a course in it. I kind of prepared myself a little in hopes that I would be on the curriculum writing team. So I did an instructional design course, and that was really informative in that what I thought to be true, I really then learned to be true, is that the principles of learning apply to children as well as adults. We both work on those same principles of learning. And so I think why I have become so hooked on concept-based instruction, if you will, is that it really reflects what I've come to understand about learning mm-hmm. and about my own learning journey. My most powerful learning, I think, has occurred when I have had a specific learning focus in mind, mm-hmm. have spent much time and effort on that learning goal, have looked to multiple sources to nurture that learning And most importantly, when I've been really metacognitive about identifying what I do know about that and what I still need to learn about that, seeking more knowledge. Um, One thing I do want to note, and again, it's it's some of that misconception that we hear in education. I do want to note that my most powerful learning experiences haven't been about me selecting what I want to learn. (laughs) The four areas that I think I have the deepest conceptual understanding about are cooperative learning, assessment, critical thinking, and now, of course, concept-based instruction. I did not personally choose any of these areas for growth. They were directed by our district, directed by Alberta Education, and informed by research around best practice. And yet... These are the areas that have been my focus for the past 10 years, the areas I've come to know best, right? Yeah. So what I'm expected to learn isn't about me. It's about students. It's about what's best for student learning. Whatever it is, it's my job to embrace that, learn it in the best way that I can. And that Put my best effort into it. And that speaks to something that we've been saying or um, kind of a phrase that we've been using and that's not what do we want to learn next? What do our kids need us to learn next? Exactly. And that's exactly. that's what that should drive our learning. That should drive our learning. Yeah. Not Absolutely. what's new and shiny and what do I think will be fun, but mm-hmm. what do I think will have the biggest impact on my classroom? Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. No, that's great. Um, now, we know that... All of these sessions sometimes don't work out, mm-hmm. um, and sometimes they're amazing. But I was wondering, do you have a favorite success or failure, a, a really positive or negative situation that you faced that, that helped you learn an important lesson that you often mm-hmm. reflect back on and, and, and see as an important part of your development as, yeah. as who you are today? Yeah. Uh, so when I first came to Parkland, uh, one of my first tasks was to help design the AC Cycle 4 project. And so we designed that around the lead teacher model, where 
two teachers from each school were the lead learners for our project and our project being embedding critical thinking into teaching and learning where we worked with the critical thinking consortium. Um, so these lead learners went to all the PD sessions. They received all the coaching from our facilitator when they did their lesson planning. All, they did all the collaboration, two people from each school. And then these lead learners were expected to apply their learning to their classrooms, which came through quite easily. But also they had to teach others in their schools what they had learned. Even though now that I reflect back, they didn't have deep enough conceptual understanding to do that. Yeah. Um, one of the successes of that lead teacher model, of course, was because of the time that those lead teachers were able to dedicate to their learning, they developed deep understanding eventually. They transferred it to their classroom teaching. Great things were happening in these classrooms. But one of the failures of that model was that it didn't transfer to the rest of the school very well. Mm. Those teachers didn't yet have the capacity to teach the teachers that they were supposed to be teaching. And there wasn't time embedded for those other teachers actually to have the focused learning time. Um, so now I guess I understand why now, right? They didn't experience that deep professional learning that the teachers experienced they grabbed onto a strategy from that lead teacher here and there, tried to implement something here and there, but didn't deeply understand it enough to make it actually transfer to their mm -hmm. practice. And so while the lead teacher model might have had a huge impact on 20% of our teachers, it really had a little impact on 80% yeah. of them. And if you're looking to have large-scale change, this yeah. isn't going to work. No. 20, you no. know, not, not, not in any timeline that we want to talk no. about at least but i mean it was the best we knew at the time of course uh, but certainly learned huge lessons mm -hmm. from that yeah mm -hmm. um let's talk about a couple smaller maybe quick hitters is like what i like to call them do you have a book that you quote that you refer to or that you give away more than others or maybe a mm -hmm. few that you you particularly <laughs> like so i've brought a few you, <laughs> you can see uh there's full of papers and markers uh, yeah. and all kinds of stuff. Um, with respect to concept-based instruction books, the two that, are, of course, are my favorite is this concept-based instruction or curriculum and instruction for the thinking classroom. Um, Lynn Erickson is the main author. You know, even though her PD session was a little bit hard to understand and a bit dry and somewhat, she she is brilliant <laughs> um, and and I've read her book multiple times, actually, in order to actually understand it. Yeah. That's kind of where I was at when I first started my learning journey. I was at the even below surface level understanding. Cause I, you know, so I've had to reread it several times. This <laughs> other book that I really love, and in fact, um, I'm recommending it for people, is The Concept-Based Inquiry in Action um, by Carla Marshall and Rachel French. Um, it really has tons, not only of good, solid information around why we do the things we need to do, but then practical strategies to go with them. So it's something teachers really grab onto because it's got the strategies that go with it. But I actually used it to design part of the concept-based planning template that I've designed, which we're now going to tweak a little bit mm -hmm. to work with our current curriculum. Um, but it is 
by far, I would say, the best book that teachers have I'm uh, excited for that one because I ordered two copies for our school and they just arrived today Perfect. and I couldn't even get them uh, kind of cataloged into <laughs> the library and someone was trying to grab them already. Oh, so that's good. That's yeah. beautiful. Um, of course, I can't forget about critical thinking. That's still the love of my life. Um, <laughs> so I think... My favorite critical thinking book is this one, Creating Thinking Classrooms by Garfield, Jeannie Newman, and Roland Case. And if you've ever heard them speak or present, um, they're brilliant men, and their voices just come alive in this book. And their ideas just make so much sense to me that th this is another highly recommended book. I've bought copies and given it to people, and it's it's lovely. And of course, on a personal level, um, my favorite read is Eat Dirt. By Dr. Josh Axe. Um, it's all about healthy gut bacteria. Right? And that's what I'm all on about now personally, how it impacts our entire being, not just our digestive tract, and about all the things we need to actually do to maintain a healthy probiotic state. And so I've also read Dr. Gundry. He he talks about healthy gut as well. I've read all his books. And I think I'm kind of at that deep conceptual understanding stage of knowing about healthy gut. Um, I'm not quite at the full transfer level because <laughs> I'll be honest that I still mess up on transferring my learning to all of my eating contests. <laughs> but um, I am working yeah. at getting there. That's so. Yeah. Well, those are really good ones. Mm -hmm. You, your last one, your your last book was was a little bit about learning, but a little bit also about being well and healthy. Yes. And I was wondering, is there anything that you do every day or most days that keeps you well and healthy? Mm -hmm. So two years ago, on April second, we moved out to the lake, um, and it is living at the lake that actually keeps me healthy. Uh, mentally, physically now I know as well, immersing myself in nature when I go for my daily walks, just breathing in the air and stopping to look at the trees and the wildflowers and the little deer or the tracks or all of that really fills my nature bucket, mm -hmm. um, let alone eating, you know, the wild berries in the summer, physically healthy for you <laughs> and building up your gut bacteria. So I know I'm really in the space I was meant to be living out there. I grew up on a farm. And so living with nature is just who I am. Nah, yeah. That's a good one. Mm -hmm. Is there an organization or a person who is particularly inspiring you right now? It could be someone you've looked to for a long time or an organization mm -hmm. you've looked for a while, or maybe someone who recently has kind of come yeah. into your life that you really are inspired to learn more about. Yeah. Um, so the Critical Thinking Consortium, better known as TC Squared, honestly has inspired me since the day I met them 14 years ago when I worked at Alberta Ed. And mm. they just continue to inspire me because they they aren't stagnant. They're robust and yet built on solid foundations of, yeah. of their foundational teachings. Um, Roland Case, the founder, one of the co-founders of TC Squared, is probably my biggest education hero that I have. And I've been blessed with the opportunity to serve on the TC Squared Board of Directors for the past six years. So I actually get to meet with Roland virtually about once a month. Wow. And he just continues to inspire me. He lives and breathes critical thinking um, in everything, every decision, every breath he takes. It, he's I can just sit and listen to him. He's that brilliant of a man. 
And yeah, I love TC squared. I mean, they're, I, I'm all about scaffolding learning and really breaking it down and figuring out how to break it down for kids to bring it to the, from surface to deep. And that is what their model does. It really has students then use criteria to justify their thinking, really think critically about it. It's for me the number one teaching model. It pulls together all those high impact practices of concept based instruction and adds the dimension of critical thinking to it, which has kids thinking even deeper. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love the work of TC squared and, mm -hmm. uh, and I agree. Yeah. It's something yeah. I, I come back to often. Let's talk about what's next for you. Uh, what are some of the things that you're looking at working in next? What are you kind of looking at now that this, not that it's gone by the wayside, but mm -hmm. like the concept-based instruction was a big focus for you. What yeah. are some of the things that you're looking at, or maybe it's iterations mm -hmm. of that same uh, concept yeah. next? So well, I am still working on concept-based instruction. Yeah. I'm still going to continue that good work um, with our teachers. Um, but something that's been on my back burner, and it really is sort of something that's been on the back burner of the district for a while. Um, teacher workload is always, always on my mind. Um, I know that teacher workload is actually a barrier to my number one passion, mm -hmm. deep learning, <laughs> right? Deep yep. professional learning, which leads to classroom transfer. That's, that's my passion, and I'm not going to lie. Um, one thing that our district has identified is that writing report cards is laborious time-consuming and does not result in the impact that we hope we would have when we spend so much time doing something. And so over the past few years, we've really been grappling with the notion that maybe one day we will be able to move from a three-report card system to a one-report card system. And wouldn't that be great for teacher workload? Right. Um, and because I thrive on long-term planning, I've actually designed a draft document that outlines a long-term plan that would have us move from three report cards to one report card. I know. Isn't it a yeah. dream? <laughs> the yeah. wheels are turning. Yeah. <laughs> it is. So it's designed along a learning continuum or along an implementation continuum. It's complete with all the criteria, all the conditions necessary to scaffold our progress to get there. It articul articulates the impactful assessment practice that we would need in order to be able to get there, the communication pieces that would need to be in place to replace the report card, all of that good stuff. It actually has four different pillars with a continuum for each pillar. And so, yeah, maybe next year, if there's no new curriculum to implement, <laughs> I might actually get a chance to start making this dream a reality. Wow, that sounds exciting. I'm mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to that. Mm -hmm. And um and honestly, I'm just so thankful that you could join us today. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate your deep learning and your openness of sharing that learning with with not only me, but with everyone who's listening. Great. And um and I just wish you continued success and just uh, look forward to, you know, working with you. Thank so thank you. you very much. Thank you, Corey. It's my pleasure.